0: Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Often when we go to a conference, a CEO will pop up to give us an inspiring pep talk about how nothing good in the world happens without insurance, and how our industry is one with a genuinely useful moral purpose that has a positive effect on everything that it touches. We may nod along and then think little more of it. But today's guest is living proof that those CEOs are right to feel inspired. That's because Ikosawehi Yahin, Secretary General at the Insurance Development Forum's job, is to harness the strong purpose of insurance to good effect in some of the countries in the world that can most benefit from it. Insurance is a business that brings together a vast array of different skills, from science and engineering to statistics and finance, all to try and prevent bad things from happening and to fix them when they do. But our skills and experience around prevention and risk mitigation are often lacking in developing countries that haven't yet grown sophisticated financial systems. And that's where the IDF comes in, acting as a convener between the insurance industry, the aid community, and international sovereign governments and local authorities on the ground. For instance, how does a developing country know where to site its critical infrastructure if its country hasn't been properly modelled for natural hazards? Akoswehi is a really interesting and intelligent guest. She's also a very rare example of an academic of high intellect who has moved from the world of ideas to one of putting theory into practice on the ground. There are a lot of misconceptions to dispel. The first of which is the idea that what the IDF is doing is a form of charity. Nothing could be further from the truth. From this encounter, you'll learn very quickly that the IDF's work is all about developing the vast new insurance markets of the future and that these are long-term profitable commercial opportunities that will give rise to even bigger opportunities as they take hold. So listen on. If you've ever felt disillusioned at work and wondered whether what you do makes a difference, what you're about to hear should put a spring in your step. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Voice of Insurance.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: For some of our listeners who maybe don't know you and what you do, why don't you Give us a quick run through yourself and, and your career to date.
1: So I am the Secretary General of the Insurance Development Forum. And professionally, I've been in this space working on disaster risk financing for quite a few years, but specifically in developing countries and really working with governments and international organizations to really try to understand how can we deepen risk management capabilities, but also how governments understand risk and finance their response recovery efforts. So that's been my professional journey for the past few years. I live in the city of London, fantastic city.
0: (laughs) And how did you get into this? How did you get to this position that you are now?
1: So I got into this position, it's funny, through writing a dissertation while I was studying at the London School of Economics. And it wasn't a particularly popular topic at that time, but I needed something that could converge my interest in environment with economics and finance. And I happened to stumble across a publication that a family member had actually pointed out to me on risk pooling initiative that was being pulled together for the Caribbean. And so I emailed the guy who was at the World Bank working on this topic, and he responded within five minutes. And he said, let's have a conversation. And it was actually through that and again, through some family members and also other people that I know who work in this space who sort of pulled me into this. So that's been the journey. And yeah, it's been a fantastic one. I often think that not many people understand the way insurance is able to blend these disciplines, right? And for me, it's been fascinating just as a space where I can interact with, you know, lawyers, geographers, geologists, engineers, finance people all in a single day. And we don't often speak about the value of that multidisciplinary nature of the insurance industry and ecosystem. So that for me has really been how I got into it is through that essentially.
0: When did you write that paper?
1: I wrote that paper in 2007, 2008. And it was actually, that dissertation was actually what allowed me to get into working around the establishment at that time of what then emerged as the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility.
0: All right. That was probably my first sort of encounter as a journalist of this kind of thing in action.
1: Exactly. And I remember the board chair at the time saying, oh, it's fantastic. You've written a paper. How about helping us to put it into implementation? So that's kind of the journey. (laughs) It's very different when you do theoretical academic work from when you implement things in practice.
0: Absolutely. Yes. I've never done the academic side of insurance. Really, I think that's beyond most of the people in insurance to do that. Oh, you
1: might be surprised. You need more practitioners actually informing, perhaps, some of the academic work. Right? It's a it's a crossroads. I, I
0: suppose a place like the Geneva Association is where that can happen, isn't it? That you know, where you get yeah. that mixture. Yeah, I suppose most insurance practitioners probably wouldn't class themselves as intellectuals. I think that's the beginning, isn't it?
1: Well, you know,
0: <laughs> they're intellectuals by the education in the University of Insurance Life.
1: Yes, insurance life. But they should see it as education in terms of risk, right? And when you think about risk, I mean, everybody deals with it on a daily basis. So, I mean, it's very relevant. So, yes, everybody might not want to claim that title, but I think it's an interesting, fascinating space to be in.
0: Tell us all about the Insurance Development Forum for someone who doesn't know what it is, or that they've, they see sometimes headlines saying IDF this or that. What is it exactly and what's it doing?
1: So the IDF is a public-private partnership, and I know we hear these words all the time, right? Uh, But it's a public-private partnership that's actually led by the industry, but also co-chaired with international organizations like the World Bank and the United Nations. And we really have as our objective the mission to expand the use of insurance and related risk management capabilities. And I really emphasize this second point in terms of related risk management capabilities to drive resilience. And this, for me, is a very important mission, especially now when you look at the news and what's happening in Libya, Morocco, wildfires, everything around the world, right? Is really how are we helping those communities, governments who are really struggling to deal with these kinds of shocks to really understand what are the risks that they are faced with and what can they do to create more resilient societies. So that's really at the heart of the work that we do at the IDF. We focus on emerging markets and developing countries. And it's really about bringing, again, those capabilities that we think are really relevant from the insurance industry towards what is, I think, a really big challenge at the moment.
0: And you've been going, is it about 2014 when you were officially founded, something like that?
1: So we were at first announced in 2015 at COP. Paris. And so it took a while, as you can imagine, right, when you're pulling these ventures together to really get the industry together. And I I have to say, IDF is a very rare institution within this space, right, to have that level of leadership within the industry engaged, but also from the public sector. And so when it was launched in 2015 at COP, it was really about how can we consolidate an industry engagement around this with the public sector in a very joint collaborative manner. And so when we were launched, our first chair was actually Stephen Catling, And then in 2018, Denny Duvern, who was the chairman of AXA at the time, became the chair. And it was only in 2018 that we established the secretariat, which is when I obviously joined the IDF. And we started to become a very operational institution. So... In 2022, Michelle Lee's then became chairman. Michelle is chairman of Zurich Insurance Group. I, I think very well known across
0: long-standing former CEO, exactly. and, and obviously previous prior to that, long-standing very senior executive at Swiss Re.
1: Exactly, and the focus. I mean, since 2018 was, you know, we all know about the protection gap. We all see what is happening around the world in terms of shocks. But we need to do something. So a central part of our work is focused on implementation, doing real things. So if we say there is a protection gap, what are you actually doing to close that in a meaningful way? And are you putting the necessary resources, financial, but also intellectual, into addressing this issue? So I I would say from my perspective, a part of a distinctive feature of the IDF is this focus on implementation.
0: That's really good because, particularly as a journalist, we see lots of different bodies like this. The pejorative term is to say which one's a talking shop and which one's a doing shop. It's good to hear that you're a doing shop and also that you've engaged so many senior members of the industry who are all about doing things.
1: Yeah, I think that that's an important element of the IDF. There is space for advocacy, there is space for engagement, all of that, because we have to also admit that it's not across the board in terms of the industry or even in the public sector in terms of a recognition of the importance of this work, right? So there is space for that. But I think from our perspective, it's probably more important to actually do. Another point that I think is also important is that when you do, you start to crowd in people who actually work On these things. So it's not just about the leadership, right? It's about people who are working, for example, in offices in Thailand or in offices in Senegal, in companies, right? To understand what are the broader topics and how can I contribute? How does this converge with what I am trying to do in those countries? So I think that's also an important element of this work.
0: Excellent. So when you're doing, what's the role that you're playing That Obviously, they haven't started a big insurance or reinsurance company with licenses and you don't underwrite. So are you a kind of convener? Are you, are you structuring? Where are you do your most work?
1: We're a convener. Yes, that's one element. But it's actually creating the systems for these entities, private companies, as well as public institutions to collaborate. Maybe I'll step back a bit by identifying what we focus on and then what that looks like at an operational level. So from our perspective, there are several elements that we think are really critical when we think about protection gap driving resilience, right? Which is addressing the issue in terms of how do we improve the availability of risk information. Sometimes this is taken for granted or it's used as an excuse for not doing anything. And again, in many of the countries that we focus on, there is a real challenge in terms of the capabilities, the need to strengthen those capabilities, but also the availability of tools that these governments, communities can use to make important risk decisions.
0: So, for example, you've been involved in this is getting models is doing yes. work to get models because I suppose you know the commercial third-party model vendors are, are going to look at a certain market and say, well, obviously, they can do the US and go, wow, we've got to be here. We've got to model everything we possibly can here because it's a great market and it's got 50 cents in every dollar in the whole world of premium dollars are spent here. So this is a really commercially viable thing and everybody's going to want to buy my model. But I suppose it becomes much harder if you're in a country with low GDP, low take-up of insurance in the first place but obviously equally geological and meteorological challenges to model, the same as everybody else. But of course, it doesn't have the commercial imperative perhaps behind it to go and say, well, this is the market I must go after. You're getting involved in that, aren't you? So that's one of those examples of things you're doing. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry and you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started.
1: Yes, precisely. And so a few years ago, two years ago in Glasgow, we actually launched a partnership with the V20 group of countries. It's a bit of a misnomer because actually 58 of the most vulnerable countries. And it was a reaction to their expression of this need for support in terms of deepening risk capabilities and availability of tools. And there is no better sector, if we are honest, right? that should be supporting and really trying to advance that, even if it is from a self-interested perspective in terms of how that feeds into product development. And so the IDF really constructed a partnership where the industry members could actually find a channel to respond to a public sector need. And then in addition to that, the German government as a country that's very interested in a lot of the global conversations around climate change, saw this development between the IDF and the V20 and also committed resources to it. So it is the industry members saying, okay, these are the tools that we have, making those tools available, but also putting resources into it. And there are a number of companies that provide multi-year funding to this program. And it's AIG, Aon, AXIS, AXA, Convex, Guy Carp, Group, Ren, Rescore, Willis, Towers, Watson. And this multi-year funding is what then the German government responded to and in turn committed $21 million to do the necessary technical work in these countries. So the work of the IDF is actually to bring these parties together to build the systems that allow for the industry to feel comfortable to engage the trust that the governments have in us, as well as the German government in actually doing this in a collaborative way that serves the interest of all parties. So that's really important. Uh, People don't often acknowledge this work, but it's basic institutional and structural work that you need to do to translate ideas to operation. And that's kind of the space that we engage in.
0: I was a broker and you can't just turn up with an underwriter and say, well, oh, let's do something in the Maldives. And he'll yes. say, well, yeah, give me more than one side of A4 paper with some actual, who's done the modelling? You know, what, how vulnerable are these low-lying islands? How low are they? What they're made of? And all that kind of stuff. So yes, you can see you're immediately removing one of the reasons why you can't do it.
1: No, I think there's another element to it, which again, I think that we underestimate the value of the work that we do within the insurance sector, which is that, This work is important, yes, for underwriting purposes, but it's also important when you have to make important decisions in terms of the investments I'm making in critical infrastructure. Where should I be building my hospitals? Where should I be building my schools? What is the strength of those roads to withstand increasingly intense storms? There is incredible value that comes with that work, and it's also a vehicle where you can build trust. In many markets, again, very thin insurance markets, not necessarily playing the role that we take for granted in many developed economies. So I just want to underscore that because I often think it's a missing part of the puzzle and the conversations that we have.
0: And that's the trust on the part of those countries as potential buyers and beneficiaries of this insurance product. If it's something that actually there isn't much of, then they're not used to it.
1: Exactly. And so a lot of the projects that we engage in, and this takes us to maybe some of the other things that the IDF does on implementation, is when we work with governments on the design of solutions, there are elements of that that, for example, in our project in Peru, there is an element that's focused on building a database that gives the government a sense of what is that stock of infrastructure currently look like so it helps us yes to place an insurance for the 50000 public schools but they can use that information to see how do we improve the quality of that stock of information because we know that floods are going to become a big factor for us and whatever else we have to deal with so within the IDF, we have a number of working groups that are really focused on the design of these solutions. So it's very practical work. Again, if it is insurance smallholder farmers in Mexico or looking at developing a flood insurance program in Nigeria or Ghana, but it comes with a complement of, I think, tools and services that really drive trust with these governments around the insurance value proposition. And so that's one working group in terms of our sovereign and humanitarian solutions working group, where we do a lot of these kinds of projects. But we also have an inclusive insurance working group, which is not necessarily working with governments directly, but looking at market development from the bottom up. And that's also quite an exciting space to be in right now.
0: How many people are really in scope for your program? It was in the hundreds of millions of potential beneficiaries of this, of citizens of these 58 nations.
1: Essentially, what the IDF does is those countries, through what is called the Insure Resilience Global Partnership, had set a target of reaching 500 million people with insurance solutions by 2025. So we as the IDF have taken on the responsibility to say we will contribute to those numbers. So within our working groups, a lot of our activities also come with a very clear plan of numbers of people that we expect to reach, what does it look like in terms of these programs that will allow us to deliver? So for our sovereign and humanitarian solutions working group, we set a target of working with 20 countries by 2025 on the design of these solutions. Our expectation is that our work with these 20 countries by 2025 will allow us to contribute at least 64 million people towards this broader objective. And so the programs that we have in Mexico, Nigeria, Ghana, Vietnam are all programs where there is a risk financing insurance component. But part of that is also tracking who are the beneficiaries, who are the people that are actually going to be impacted as a result of these things.
0: And do you think they're going to hit the 500 million by 2025? It's not long to go now.
1: Well, I think it will be a challenge for the global insurance resilience partnership to reach the 500 million. I don't think it is impossible, but I think it is a challenge given the complexity of the work that we have to do to actually get there. I am quite optimistic about the IDF and the work that we are doing on our targets. So, for example, when we look at the ambition that we said of working with 20 countries, we've actually surpassed that. And now we're working with 23 governments to really try to unpack what specific risk financing solutions are they interested in. And... Of those 23 governments, eight programs or eight of those countries are at a point where programs are in full implementation. And right now, I think the estimates for those first eight countries is potential impact in terms of reaching 18 million people. And associated with that is $2.2 billion in terms of possible capacity to accompany that, right? So those are very, I think, tangible numbers. But again, you have to have the structure that allows the industry to work with the public sector to do this and to also track it. So I'm pretty confident it's very difficult work. I'm not saying that we're going to completely hit everything out of the ballpark. That would be perhaps a little bit extreme.
0: But 64 million people exceeds most populations of most Western European countries, for example. So, yes, it's a lot of people if you line them all up in a row. <laughs> so that's 64 million people that wouldn't have been helped otherwise. That sounds pretty good to me. And It's good to have lofty goals because it forces you to keep going, keep going and keep going because it's, it's, it's not going to end. So a typical scheme that you help put together. You would say that it's most likely to be an insured. The insured is like to be a government and it's likely to be looking at their critical infrastructure, sort of, yeah, you say school buildings, hospitals, essential roads, water and drains and things like that. Is that the typical sort of scheme? Obviously, there's a lot of schemes and things like in agriculture and other things as well. So is there a typical scheme or is would that be a kind of core product that you're helping to arrange?
1: I think it's a core element, but it's not the sum of because one of the things that I'm acutely aware of, and also given the experience that I have working in this space, is that you really have to meet the client, maybe the government, where they are, right? And some of the assumptions that you make about what they need might not necessarily hold true. So it's also about a certain level of flexibility in terms of engaging with these governments to try to unpack those needs. Naturally, a lot of what has emerged have been things focused on ensuring smallholder farmers, looking at critical infrastructure, if it's schools, hospitals, looking at specific hazards like flood risk, which can be quite complex in terms of unpacking that. So we tend to engage, yes, with sovereigns, but also sub-sovereigns at a city level. But there is another constituency that I think that we often forget in this picture, which is the humanitarian community. And this is really important in the context of developing countries. And I'll share with you a few stats. The reality is that when disasters occur in many of these countries, the financing response that informs, that comes after is usually humanitarian, right? It's usually donors, international UN system, appeals, et cetera. And we know that that's not a particularly efficient way of going about things. Another important fact that I think is important to note is that in 2021, the international community spent $64 billion on humanitarian response. That's a huge figure. Of that $64 billion, only 1.3% was financing that was prearranged.
0: Right? That's crazy. Isn't it? It's so inefficient, isn't it? Because, of course, yes, that's the one thing we're really good at in insurance. And I suppose this is the core advantage, is that you could have just paid a small premium, and then you would get instant solvent delivery. Whereas, of course, you have a disaster. Sometimes if it's a big enough disaster, you get lots of global leaders jetting in and there's a donor conference. They make a lot of pledges when the microphones are on and then read a lot that a lot of that stuff doesn't necessarily materialize very quickly or the cash flow isn't really there, is it? So insurance is a far better mechanism because one, you know, we have to be solvent. We're all regulated solvent entities in order to maintain our licenses and our ratings. So we know we can pay these things otherwise we wouldn't enter into such contracts. So it's far more efficient.
1: So for me, that is also an important community within the IDF. is how do we increase that 1.3%, right? And it is, yes, uh, a social, you know, public imperative and a good. It's also, you know, many governments around the world are facing serious financing constraints, and there's increasing pressure in terms of efficiency of spend. But it's also the fact that we can do better, right? And it's an opportunity For those within the ecosystem to actually work with the public sector to think about how do you increase that number from 1.3% to something that matches the kind of reality that we are seeing and also the ambition and the capabilities of the industry. So, for me, this is also an important area that we work on as the IDF and hopefully should leave some room for reflection and thought for those of us who are in this space.
0: Yeah, so to give us an idea of a typical scheme, I know there's no such thing as a typical scheme. Why don't you run us through one of the recent ones? I saw something in Uzbekistan, for example. What were you doing there? Yes,
1: yeah, so Uzbekistan is a program where we really are working with the government on an insurance program for smallholder farmers. And again, looking globally, when you think about exposed populations, a lot of the people are farmers, right? Subsistence farmers, lack of insurance coverage. They're doing the best they can in a, an increasingly volatile climate And so our work is really about how do we get the government sensitized, but working with the government to develop meaningful solutions that are also financed appropriately and in a sustainable manner for these communities. Again, they can be often neglected community because people question, okay, the ability to pay, et cetera. But if we work with the sovereign, can we structure something that is sustainable? And that is important in terms of the individual farmer also has a family that he's taking care of. So you might reach one farmer, but that's a household of five. And there's a social responsibility. There's a financial inclusion element to it as well. So the Uzbekistan project is really focused on small farmers within that country and designing a solution that meets the needs of those communities. We have a similar program in Mexico. Again, supported by the federal government, which was really looking at, okay, how do they provide insurance for smallholder farmers? But they were very interested in how do we sensitize farmers to insurance itself? As a federal government, we would be willing to pay the premium, but we need also an element that allows for better distribution so that the money gets directly to those farmers, reduces the need for intermediaries, But also there is an education component to this program. And then you have other programs like in Lagos and in Accra, in Ghana, where it's more about flood risk in an urban setting. And this is extremely complex, right? It's not only the physical phenomenon, it also deals with town planning. And so, there's a lot of work that we need to do to try to unpack what is flood risk in an urban setting and what is insurable. And then, structuring of that, as well as some advice in terms of perhaps ways in which the government should be seeking to reduce the risk fundamentally.
0: I often see these announcements about these sort of programs, and parametric triggers seem to be quite a common feature. Is that partly about the sort of trust building? Because then, if a perhaps more skeptical insured need convincing about the value of insurance. They can see this parameter that's managed by a third party and say, well, I might not trust all these uh, insurance people, but at least I trust the fact that, you know, if this number goes above 50, I'll get paid.
1: There's an element of that, but I think it's more about speed and flexibility and transparency. I mean, when you have a disaster, you need resources as soon as possible, not six months and 12 months after the event.
0: And you're not going to send um, you know, someone in a bowler hat and, and Wellington boots out to, to somewhere that has, really doesn't have critical infrastructure anyway. It's not going to be an economical way of adjusting a loss, is it?
1: <laughs> so there's a speed element to it. There's also transparency, which is objectivity in terms of what is the trigger and the basis for me to get my resources. And it helps everybody at the same time. In some of the programs that we're involved in, it's also the flexibility of those resources. So usually when you have development finance or, or response funding going into these countries, there are usually limitations on what can be used. So many governments or counterparts often find a lot of value in that flexibility in terms of use. That said, I think that there is a tremendous way that we still need to go in terms of the development of parametric products, heavily reliant on data. So there is a need for investment in that because that also helps reduce yeah. around basis risk. and. That needs to be reduced if we are really going to strengthen the trust element of these solutions. And then there's regulatory components to it as well, because not all jurisdictions necessarily consider parametric as insurance. So these are some of the challenges. They hold a lot of potential. And we are seeing increased use of parametrics in, in these programs.
0: What about the experience today? You know, you talk to an insurance CEO and they say, well, you know, the, well, the product we're selling is claims, actually. And obviously, maybe peace of mind, but it's fundamentally James, how's it been on some of the experience of some of the early work that you've done? Have we been able to have losses and be able to get them swiftly paid and that money into the right hands?
1: So we work as the IDF in the pre-competitive phase. We do the technical work with the governments, with counterparts to design the solutions. And then the governments can make the choice of, okay, we are taking this to market or not. That's also an option, right? I think that we've been quite good in terms of the technical work. We've built a lot of trust. Again, I keep emphasizing this point in terms of governments really understanding these products. What are their strengths? What are their limitations? And we've had a lot of, I think, positive feedback from the government counterparts that we've worked with in terms of the commitment of time and resources to work through these things and very complex products as well. But there's a flip side to this, Mark, that I also like to flag, which is there is also a lot of learning that takes place within the industry about these new markets. There's also within the industry a lot of learning that takes place across companies. And I'll emphasize this point, which is that not all companies engage in this space around how do you engage public sector around the insurance value proposition. And so we are seeing quite a lot of sharing and collaboration in that sense, which I think is fundamentally positive for the industry in terms of really making headway in these markets and doing meaningful things. Because there is a lot of conversation right now about the value of insurance.
0: So I can't ask you about your members' underwriting results because, of course, that you're not really privy to those. But I suppose they're still here, so they can't be that bad. And they feel that they're here and they're going to learn more.
1: Well, they're still here. I don't take it for granted because it's not necessarily always the case. They're still there. But I think it is also because of the focus of the idea for an implementation. I think if it wasn't that, we would struggle more. But this idea of we can make headway in terms of the conversations that we are having with governments getting stronger, increasing appetite to look at different types of risk financing solutions. So there is something about that focus on implementation being a key part of maintaining the industry engagement.
0: I suppose one thing that we're talking about sustainability all the time, presumably those members are going into this. There might be a subsidy applied to the premium, but... They are not expecting this to be a subsidy that they're giving to the world. I presume they're going into this. They want to have technical pricing. They want to have the correct technical pricing. Maybe they'd be happy because of the nature of the business. They'd be happy to be giving a lower margin and not jump over the same capital hurdles they would do with, say, with their business in Florida, for example. But is it right to say that those members are looking for a genuinely sustainable, correct technical price at which to do this business?
1: Absolutely. We're not doing this as charity.
0: Well, it's important. It's a really important misconception that people might say, well, this is that sort of charity thing, isn't
1: it? Exactly. That's a big misconception. This is not charity. This is actually about developing markets. And it's about how do you get very difficult contexts, right? Because these are countries that, I mean, they're dealing with education, health, financing needs, right? But at the same time, they're dealing with climate and increasing disasters. So who is working on that? And so, Our work is not about charity. It's actually about creating sustainable systems that allow for the market to develop and to develop solutions that actually meet those needs. And from my perspective, this is so central to the purpose of the industry. And it is something that we should be actively focused on and not stepping back and thinking that it will automatically solve itself. And again, if I go back to the humanitarian numbers that I sort of flagged, right, that's $64 That's a significant amount. And if the development community, and we've already seen expressions of this, to shift that money towards ex ante, we should be at the table to shape what those instruments look like. And that's not charity. That's business.
0: Yes, of course. And there's nothing more unsustainable than compounding losses year after year, because, you know, one, who, who wants to have a counterparty that's losing money all the time? They're not going to be around forever, are they? They will eventually run out of money. So yes, again, it, it's a fundamental point, but I'm really glad that we went over it again. Actually, I just came back from Monte Carlo. Reinsurers, you know, in their everyday commercial world, are moving away from risk. They're resetting themselves to be more in excess of more what they would view as attritional risk. But of course, everything you're doing is probably falling into that what they would call the attritional cat risk bucket. And we know we can see that the trend has been pretty bad. We've had another a difficult first half of the year. And of course, if we just see the headlines, we just it's, you know we've seen Morocco. We've had Libya now. You know, it rains in Libya. Do you feel? that we're going to be able to maintain a viable product? Do you have the faith that we will do, even though in the face of this higher frequency?
1: Yes. Or maybe I'm a little bit too hopeful. I don't know, right? But I tend to be an optimist in the sense that we are dealing with a world that is changing uh, rapidly before our eyes, increasing risks, et cetera. But the insurance industry, and again, I go back to this issue of its purpose, is to look at that and try to figure out what can we do to make this situation more tenable. So I think that what it will do is force the industry to really think about how we engage with the broader public sector around what we need to do to better manage these risks so that the insurance industry can continue to help economies develop.
0: Absolutely. Of course. And this is not just relevant to the developing world. This is the developed world where, of course, you have, you know, ridiculously low take up of earthquake insurance in California, which, you know, one of the technically one of the richest places of GDP per capita in the world. But it's underprotected. You know, it's very obvious to anyone that it's underprotected. And the next big earthquake is going to cost the government a lot more than it costs the insurance industry.
1: Exactly. And so we cannot shy away, again, out of self-interest, right, from really pushing the discussion with the public sector, right? And from my perspective, actually experiences that we have in the IDF is actually working in contexts where the insurance is very limited. So there are a lot of things from that experience and innovation that we are seeing in that context that could be even more relevant when you think about what is happening in more developed economies. Last week, I was in a meeting that was convened by IOPA and others, and this was a big topic of discussion in terms of the protection gap as a major issue within Europe and really looking at, okay, what are the experiences of elsewhere? How should we be approaching the protection gap? What are some of the innovative financing solutions? Is there a place for regional risk pooling? So from my perspective, yes, we see real difficulties in the market on this front, but more than ever, that is actually when we need to confront the issue and really push the conversation and advocacy And also the very tangible work on what do new solutions need to look like when we look at what's happening in the broader landscape. And it's a matter of relevance from my perspective.
0: And I suppose, yes, you're an advocate that if we are pushing in the right way to build things in the right place to the right standards, then we can resist a lot of these things, or at least we can resist them to the degree that the risk is insurable.
1: Yes. So it's investment in risk reduction. It's what should we be doing to reduce those risks fundamentally? What should we be doing to educate populations about the risks that they also have to deal with? As I said earlier, a lot of the work that we do in the IDF is not just simply about taking a product off the shelf and saying, here it is, right? But it's actually making that case from the fundamentals around the risk analytics work that feeds right into the product development. And I feel like, you know, that kind of work is going to be increasingly important given what we are seeing globally. It's going to be important in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere. So this divide also that we often have between developing countries and developed countries around the protection gap might not be so far. Granted, yes, how these disasters play out in developing countries, emerging markets is vastly different when you don't have those kinds of supporting systems and insurance mechanisms available. But the experiences in developing markets might be facing those challenges in some areas and particularly underserved communities. So that should also serve as, I think, a wake-up call for many governments. And if it does, I think as an industry, we should be prepared to match that conversation, right, and push the conversation as well.
0: There are no climate change deniers left in the industry. I can certainly certify that. In fact, there are no climate change agnostics left in the industry either. But ironically, sadly, we've had this net zero insurance alliance, one of the main sort of forums for which we were trying to begin to combat climate change by working towards net zero. That's effectively collapsed. Could you be playing a role here as a great convener of the industry around the world? Could you be playing a role there?
1: I think it's disappointing to see what's been happening with the NZIA, but I do think that it has provided a lot of value in terms of how the industry thinks about the transition and supporting clients, etc. But I also think the experience has been instructive in terms of how do we engage with the broader political system on these topics. I think that what we have seen, because many of the companies have not stepped back from their net zero commitments. They have continued to voice that they will pursue this. But again, I I do think it's a little bit of a blow in terms of collective action. In terms of the IDF, we exist in a similar space, even though our focus has been more on the resilience and the adaptation side of things. But even that work and the work that we are doing, I think is really relevant because it also shows that there is space for collaborative action. And there is also, I think, an opportunity as governments, as citizens begin to feel the impact of these disasters to really take a step back to reflect, OK, on what are we really doing? So from my perspective, I think it's been a little bit unfortunate to see what's happened with the NZIA. But I also think that it should not stop us from really seeing the value of collaboration because it is inevitable when we think about what's happening generally. But it's also about how do we sharpen our approach and the conversations and engagement with the public sector and political systems around the climate space.
0: I try and think of it like the JPEG, you know, the global standard for digital photography that, you know, when it first started, there was probably a Kodak format and there was probably an Adobe format. And and then, of course, unless you, you could only sort of send a photo, someone had a Kodak format. And then if they didn't, you know, you'd have to download the Adobe one when your mother sent you a picture with her Adobe thing. But of course, then they got something together that was the joint picture engineering group. And they made that information interchangeable because it was in the right format. Everyone can now send each other pictures, which is an advancement of the world and very handy for all of us, particularly perhaps in the context of a lot of their smallholders who can actually send a picture of the loss they're having almost in real time which is going to be filtered straight up to an insurance company, so that could actually send them micropayment straight away, which is fantastic, isn't it? We couldn't do that if it wasn't for a JPEG. On that carbon emissions, do you think we need a sort of carbon emissions version of a JPEG? Because it's something that has to cascade throughout the whole world of insurance, you know, all the way from an insured to an insurance company, probably to the insured's bank if they're borrowing money off them, then up to the insurance company they're buying insurance from. And that insurance company then has to aggregate that and put in their treaties. And those reinsurers then have to aggregate that and obviously tell their regulators and also, you know, tell their retrocessionaires as well. So is that the sort of core building chip we should probably work on? And hopefully that'll be something that no one could accuse us of being something that's anti-competitive in any way.
1: I'm not sure. I would not preempt to say what that solution looks like. Right?
0: <laughs> I'm not offering to build it. I wouldn't have any idea how that would work, but that was my idea anyway.
1: I think there is space for lots of innovation in this area, but I also think on the one hand, there is innovation, but on the other hand, I think that there is a political conversation there around, do we really have consensus in terms of what we want to achieve as a global community? And as we do that, how are we actually making it easier or more difficult to achieve those end objectives? There is a role, I think, that obviously the industry can play through its work and its contribution to society. But it's also about the political signals that are being sent and, you know, the political system itself and the signals that it sends to the private sector of the direction that we want to go. And I know this sounds perhaps a little bit vague, but on the solutions part, I think, yeah, that's right for innovation, etc. But I tend to feel as though this is an area where there is a little bit more need for political leadership because you just said, OK, you, you've not heard of any climate deniers in, in Monte Carlo and all these spaces, right? That's increasingly not such a common thing, but does, what does that mean in terms of the political signals that we then send?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those are two
1: separate things.
0: It's probably a good time to talk about those politicians. I'm sure a lot of them are hopefully getting the train rather than flying down to COP28. What are the main goals that you'd have on the agenda there? What would you like to see coming out of it?
1: So I'd like to see stronger commitments, again, from governments around issues related to adaptation and also on mitigation. because if we are not making progress on mitigation, we are just creating a world that's unlivable, right? So that's a fundamental. But the reality also is that for many countries, we are not also seeing flows in terms of financing for adaptation to deal with the realities of climate change. So my hope for COP is that we see the conversations around resilience and adaptation also taken as seriously as the mitigation one. I'm also hoping that we will have an even stronger presence in terms of insurance and its role in driving resilience and adaptation at COP. And one of the things that has recently been issued is the UN Stocktake report. And it actually paints a very alarming picture in terms of very little is taking place in terms of action on the ground. So a lot of people are having fantastic statements on the state of the world and, and all of that, but not enough is happening on the ground to drive solutions. And so for me, Part of the IDF's presence is also to give visibility to the things that we are doing, the practical things that can be implemented if we want to address the climate crisis. So again, if we talk about humanitarian financing, if we shift to say 25% of that budget, into prearranged financing, that will have a huge impact in terms of just driving resilience and a much more proactive thinking around these risks and how are we actually arranging resources beforehand. So my hope is that we see stronger, bolder leadership politically, but also the idea if we give people a very strong sense of there are practical things that can be done. They need to be scaled in many instances and supported, but they can be done. And so part of our presence there will be to demonstrate that.
0: One last thing is you mentioned the word adaptation in your reply just then. We hear a lot about resilience and things like that and building back better, that kind of stuff. But what's adaptation in your world?
1: Maybe I'll start with, okay. what is resilience, right? Resilience is the idea that you have a shock or whatever it is, right? And you can deal with it and recover and be better even than where you started off. Resilience is part of adaptation in the sense that adaptation is how do we actually invest in the capabilities so that we are not dealing with these shocks and we can deal with whatever scenarios that we have to contend with. So it's about investment in basic infrastructure. If I need to move my utilities, my electrical utilities from standing poles to underground because it reduces my risk. That is adaptation. That is creating societies that can withstand better the kinds of shocks and impacts that we are seeing with climate change. And part of that is also strengthening resilience. And part of that is also dealing with residual risk, which is also where insurance comes in. So it's a bit of a spectrum with some convergence, but that for me is sort of the the delineation or distinction Between adaptation, resilience, and a little bit on what the role of insurance is.
0: In the typical structure of the sort of insurance that you're arranging, is it always a kind of new for old element? In that, like the earthquake we've just had in Morocco, a lot of those buildings, of course, I mean, they're sort of made of mud, really, aren't they? And obviously, when they shake, they fall down, but sometimes it doesn't shake that often. Presumably, you wouldn't want to rebuild those buildings the way they were built 400 years ago, would you? So is the finance going to include that adaptation as part of the the indemnity?
1: You know, Mark, that was what I was referencing in terms of the complexity of the IDF projects, right? Because a critical part of that is actually providing guidance on what you need to be doing to actually reduce that risk. So the program that I referenced in Peru was not just simply about insurance. It was also about, okay, what is this stock of infrastructure and how should you be strengthening that so that when this flood occurs next time, you're not back in this position. And so we actually have within the IDF, a disaster risk reduction task force, that part of that is actually through our engagements with countries on these programs, there is that element of what are you doing to fundamentally reduce that risk. And the insurance conversation is a powerful way to introduce those conversations to governments, right? And to make the case fundamentally, from a financing perspective, why the investment in risk reduction is important. It's part of the DNA and the work that we do as the IDF. And I think that it has to become an even more increasing part of how the industry just engages with its clients in a broad sense.
0: Okuswe, thank you so much for this. It's been really, really interesting. I think we all go to conferences and we get big insurance CEOs starting their remarks, I say, you know, this insurance is a a force for good. It's the good side of capitalism. It's got a real purpose, and it's a good purpose and a moral purpose, and it helps good things happen around the world. I think you're demonstrating this. You're really part of that. How do people get involved with you? Obviously, you don't have to be of the level of a Michel Lies or or Stephen Catlin or Inga Beale to get involved, do you? How can they engage You know, people who are perhaps lower down the insurance food chain, but who have been inspired listening to you? How can they help you out?
1: I love that point in terms of getting people engaged, right? Because we need people who are at the forefront of implementation, who are having those conversations on a daily basis and who are thinking about this, right? So I would say we have an active LinkedIn profile, which you can contact us through there, through our website. You can find out more about the IDF. We're also on Twitter. And you can also email us at info at insdevforum.org for further information and to explore, okay, how can you support? And as I said earlier in my intervention, I see this as something where we can actually get a global community engaged. It's yes, those of us who are sitting in London, but it's also those of us who are sitting in national offices that are dealing and trying to explain to the smallholder farmer why insurance is important or in Peru or wherever the case might be. So I'm I'm really hoping that it energizes and makes people feel and understand the purpose of insurance and what it is that we exist to do.
0: We'll put all the links in the notes to the podcast so you don't have to be frantically um, getting your pen and rewinding to get that email address. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed our chat and keep up the good work and then come back and report back to us when hopefully when more schemes and more great, great plans are afoot. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform.